Welcome back to Roshcast episode 7. We're going to stick with a warm-up rapid review to go over a couple of high-yield facts from last week before we get into the new material. Let's start with a little game I like to call Name the Antidote. First up, bupivacaine. Bupivacaine, that would be intralipid. Hydrofluoric acid. Hydrofluoric acid is treated with calcium gluconate, either topically or intraarterially. Excellent. And lastly, benzodiazepine overdose. That's treated with flumazenil. Excellent again. Remember to be careful when reversing a benzodiazepine overdose, as that can precipitate seizures in chronic benzodiazepine users and abusers. Let's do one more tox question from the last episode. It's about iron toxicity. What is the commonly cited quantity of iron necessary for a toxic overdose, and what is it treated with? Ingestions of greater than 40 milligrams per kilogram typically require treatment. The appropriate treatment is defaroxamine. Changing gears for a second, let's review some cutaneous findings we discussed. What is Trousseau sign? Trousseau sign is a migratory thrombophlebitis, and it's associated with pancreatic cancer. Great. And what is erythema nodosum, and what typically causes it? Erythema nodosum is an inflammatory condition characterized by tender red nodules or lumps under the skin. It's often caused by infection, typically strep. It's also associated with certain drugs, especially OCPs. Well done. And one last one before we move on to the new material. In a patient with an EBV infection, what drug is known to cause a morbilliform rash? That would be both ampicillin and amoxicillin. So that concludes the warm-up rapid review. Remember, if you were confused about any of the material we just covered, or you have no recollection of us covering it at all, check out last week's episode. That would be episode 6, where we go through these topics in much more thorough detail. Since I led the rapid review, why don't you get us going with the first question? Sounds good. Let's start with some obstetrics and gynecology. A 22-year-old woman presents with vaginal bleeding. She should be approximately 10 weeks pregnant based on a previous ultrasound, which confirmed an IUP. On today's bedside sono, no IUP is visualized. Her blood type is A negative, and the father's blood type is unknown. Which of the following is true regarding the administration of RH immunoglobulin? Is it A, a test dose is administered first because of the risk of an anaphylactoid reaction? B, RH immunoglobulin 300 micrograms is indicated? C, RH immunoglobulin is not indicated? Or D, she can delay RH immunoglobulin for up to 72 hours? So the patient here is clearly RH negative, and she seems to be having a spontaneous abortion. So I'm going to go with answer choice B. RH immunoglobulin 300 micrograms is indicated. You're on the right track, but the answer here is actually choice D. She can delay RH immunoglobulin for up to 72 hours. Okay, I get that, but why isn't B also right? Good question. 300 micrograms of RH immunoglobulin is the recommended dose once a woman is more than 12 weeks pregnant. Prior to 12 weeks, the recommended dose is only 50 micrograms. Choice A is not right because RH immunoglobulin is not associated with an anaphylactoid reaction. Fair enough. Why don't you quickly review why we give RH immunoglobulin in the first place? Sure. In an RH negative woman, if the father is known to be RH positive, or even if the father is of unknown blood type, we give RH immunoglobulin to prevent RH sensitization. If the mother develops antibodies against the RH positive antigen, future pregnancies are at risk of RH incompatibility, which could lead to hemolytic disease of the newborn. Both things we should try to avoid. Let's change gears and review some pharmacology. A 22-year-old man presents to the ED with clonus of his neck to the right. Which of the following drugs is he most likely taking? Is it A, benztropine, B, cocaine, C, haloperidol, or D, ziprazidone? Clonus in the setting of drug use is likely a dystonic reaction. Dystonic reactions are a common side effect of the typical antipsychotic drugs, such as haloperidol. So I'll go with choice C here. 
That's correct. Haloperidol is a high-potency, typical antipsychotic that blocks dopamine 2 receptors in the basal ganglia, which can lead to an acute dystonic reaction. 50% of dystonic reactions occur within 48 hours, and 90% occur within 5 days. In worst-case scenarios, use of these drugs can acutely lead to sustained movement disorders like Parkinsonism and tardive dyskinesia with prolonged use. And if a patient were to present with acute dystonia, what's the treatment? You actually have two choices here. You can either give IV or IM benztropine or diphenhydramine. Recovery typically occurs very quickly and should be continued for 48 hours, so make sure to not only dose the medication in the emergency department, but to instruct the patient to continue taking it for two more days around the clock, even if they are symptom-free. That question was just a warm-up for you, so you're up again. A patient presents after a chemical splash to the eye. What management is immediately indicated? Is it A, high-volume irrigation, B, pupil dilation and slit lamp examination, C, referral to ophthalmology, or D, topical antibiotics and optho-consultation? The answer here would definitely be A, high-volume irrigation. For sure. Irrigation should be done immediately here. But what's the deal with checking the pH of the eye? I think I remember something about that. Well, definitely don't delay irrigation. But if pH paper is readily available, you may consider checking the pH prior to beginning irrigation. If you do so, the target pH should be 7.0 to 7.2, and you can use that to guide your eye resuscitation. Well, that makes sense. So if you do check the pH beforehand and you find that the pH is low or high, is there any difference between alkali versus acid burns? There's no difference in treatment, as the answer here is still going to be irrigation, but there is a difference in the pathophysiology. Alkali burns result in liquefactive necrosis. They actually do more damage than acid injuries because they penetrate rapidly, causing damage to the cornea, iris, and lens, and can potentially lead to blindness. In contrast, acid burns result in protein coagulation, which causes a limited depth of injury. Excellent. Before we move on to the next question, let's review the other answer choices here. Answer B, pupil dilation and slit lamp examination, although certainly necessary, should not delay irrigation. Similarly, answer C, referral to ophthalmology, will certainly be needed in the long run, but again, should not delay irrigation. And lastly, answer choice D, topical antibiotics and an optho consult would be needed, but irrigation is immediately indicated prior to any further interventions. So it sounds like the take-home here is don't delay irrigation. Let's move on. Which of the following medications most commonly leads to recurrent episodes of hypoglycemia? Is it A, glargine insulin, B, glamipiride, C, metformin, or D, pioglitazone? Although I really want to pick answer choice A, glargine insulin, I seem to remember that answer choice B, glamipiride, is the correct answer here. Exactly. Glamipiride is a sulfonylurea. These are common agents that lead to recurrent episodes of hypoglycemia. They stimulate the islet beta cells to secrete more insulin, and they also increase the peripheral tissue's sensitivity to insulin. The prolonged half-life leads to recurrent and even delayed hypoglycemic episodes up to 24 hours after ingestion. That all makes sense, but what about glargine? Isn't glargine a long-acting insulin, and therefore shouldn't that also cause recurrent episodes of hypoglycemia? You are right that glargine is a long-acting insulin, but it doesn't have a peak in activity, which means it rarely causes hypoglycemia. Metformin increases peripheral sensitivity to insulin and suppresses gluconeogenesis, so only in very rare cases does it lead to hypoglycemia. Finally, pioglitazone decreases insulin resistance and doesn't cause hypoglycemic episodes. Since we're talking about insulin, don't forget about the classic test question about factitious hypoglycemia. A low C-peptide level with a high insulin level is diagnostic for factitious hypoglycemia. Although very rarely seen in the ED, it's frequently found on standardized testing. Let's move on. 
A 34-year-old woman presents complaining of dysuria and vaginal itching. Your speculum exam reveals a vaginal vault filled with a thick, curdy, white discharge. Which of the following statements is correct regarding this diagnosis? Is it A, a fishy odor is present when vaginal discharge is mixed with potassium hydroxide? B, metronidazole is the recommended treatment? C, multiple petechiae are often seen on the vaginal wall? D, the pH of the discharge is less than 4.5? Or E, vaginal discharge is often foul-smelling? I'm pretty sure you're talking about the cottage cheese-like discharge of candidal vaginitis, which means the answer here is D, the pH is less than 4.5. This is most definitely candidal vaginitis. Patients typically complain of vaginal itching, dysuria, and dyspareunia. Some of the more common risk factors include diabetes, HIV, recent antibiotic use, and pregnancy. If you were to take a sample of the discharge and were to examine it under a microscope after treating it with 10% potassium hydroxide, you would find branched chain hyphae or pseudohyphae as well as spores in the discharge. What other infectious gynecologic conditions are the other answers referring to? Well, the fishy odor in choice A is classic for bacterial vaginosis. In choice B, metronidazole is used for trichomonas or BV, not for candidal vaginitis. Instead, you can use diflucan or topical clotrimazole. The petechiae of answer C also refers to trichomonas. This is more easily remembered as a strawberry cervix. Unlike BV and trichomonas, candidal vaginitis has no associated odor, which makes choice E wrong. All of these are pretty classic associations. It's important to know them cold. Let's move on to a trauma question. An 18-year-old is struck in the face with a softball. CT shows a fracture of the inferior orbital floor. She has numbness over the anterior medial cheek and upper lip. Which of the following nerves is likely to be affected? Is it A, the anterior superior alveolar nerve, B, the inferior orbital nerve, C, the supratrochlear nerve, or D, the zygomatic branch of the facial nerve? So the question here is about an inferior orbital floor fracture. So I'll go with the answer choice with those exact words. Answer B, the inferior orbital nerve. Exactly. The inferior orbital nerve is part of the V2 distribution of the trigeminal nerve that supplies the anterior medial face. The nerve actually runs through the orbital floor, so it is often damaged in orbital fractures causing numbness over the anterior medial cheek and upper lip. Right. The anterior superior alveolar nerve is also a branch of V2 and supplies sensation to the maxillary teeth and oral mucosa. Answer C, the supratrochlear nerve, supplies sensation to the upper eyelid and medial forehead. Answer D, the zygomatic branch of the facial nerve, is a motor nerve that innervates the orbicularis oculi muscle, which facilitates making facial expressions. Nice review. And here's a little bonus question for you. Which intraocular muscle can become entrapped in orbital floor blowout fractures? That would be the inferior rectus muscle. Excellent. Let's wrap up with another rapid review. RH immunoglobulin administration can be delayed up to 72 hours in spontaneous abortions. The correct dose of RH immunoglobulin is 50 micrograms before 12 weeks and 300 micrograms for those at 12 weeks or more. Haloperidol and other typical antipsychotics can cause a dystonic reaction. The treatment is either IV or IM benztropine or diphenhydramine. Although recovery is typically quick, treatment should be continued for 48 hours. A chemical splash to the eye should be immediately irrigated with high-volume irrigation to a target pH of 7.0 to 7.2. Alkali burns typically cause more damage than acid burns due to liquefactive necrosis. Sulfonylureas are well known to cause recurrent episodes of hypoglycemia. Although long-acting insulins can also cause hypoglycemia, they don't have a peak of activity so are less likely to do so. In factitious hypoglycemia, there is a low C-peptide level, but there are high insulin levels due to exogenous administration of insulin. 
Candidal vaginitis is characterized by a thick white odorless discharge. It's treated with diflucan or clotrimazole. The pH of the discharge would be less than 4.5. A fishy smelling vaginal odor is characteristic of BV, which is treated with metronidazole. Metronidazole is also the treatment of choice for trichomonas. The inferior orbital nerve runs through the inferior orbital floor. It innervates the anterior medial face. So that concludes Roshcast episode 7. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or your podcast player of choice. And while you're there, please rate us and leave us a quick review to help the Roshcast brand grow and improve. See you guys next week.